You're listening to What Does the Word Say, a series of podcasts on biblical theology produced by Grace and Glory Media. My name is Mark Roby, and I'm your host for this series. Our teacher is Dr. Richard Spencer. Before we begin our regular session this week, we want to take a moment to let our listeners know about an exciting upcoming series. Dr. Spencer, you're going to be doing an interview with Professor Henry Schaefer III. Can you tell us a bit about him? I'd love to. Professor Schaefer is one of the world's most highly regarded chemists. He's currently the director of the Center for Computational Quantum Chemistry at the University of Georgia, and it's been reported that he's been nominated for a Nobel Prize five times. Now, that's impressive. It is very impressive. He's also published over 1,600 scientific papers, and there have been scientific conferences held specifically in honor of his work, and even a book published in honor of his work. Now, I'm no scientist, but 1,600 papers sounds like an awful lot. It's a huge number. He got his Ph.D. from Stanford in 1969, so if you work it out, that's an average of more than 32 papers a year from then until now, which is a number that simply blows my mind. And these are not fluffy papers. These are mostly published in the best journals in his field and are clearly important papers since he's one of the most highly cited scientists in the world. When you say, quote-unquote, highly cited, you're referring to the number of times other researchers cite his work as a reference, right? That's right. He has over 67,000 citations to his papers, which puts him in very elite company indeed. And yet, Professor Schaefer is a Bible-believing Christian. Yes, he is. And he's given talks on his faith hundreds, if not thousands, of times around the world. He will be here giving a talk on the UC Davis campus on October 3rd, and he's graciously consented to letting me interview him for a podcast while he's here. Well, I certainly look forward to hearing that interview. But now let's get back to our study of systematic theology by continuing to examine God's communicable attributes. We finished with God's omniscience last time. Are we ready to move on to another attribute? Not quite. I I want to take a few minutes to go over some of the implications of God's omniscience and people's reactions to this doctrine. I think these are important because this is an attribute that is frequently denied by professing Christians in practice, if not in word. What do you mean by that? I mean that even Christians who have accepted the biblical teaching that God is omniscient sometimes act in ways that are inconsistent with that belief. For example, we all sin, but every single time we sin, we're denying the lordship of Christ, and we're acting as if God will not know about our sin or that he can't or won't do anything about it. In other words, we don't fear God. We're neglecting not only his omniscience, but his omnipotence and holiness as well. Yeah, that's right. But we definitely should fear God. Even when our sin is just in our mind, God knows. In Luke 5, we read an account of Jesus healing a paralytic. But the first thing he did was tell the man his sins were forgiven. As a result, some of the people present were thinking to themselves that Jesus was committing blasphemy because only God can forgive sins. But in verse 22, we're told that, quote, Jesus knew what they were thinking, unquote. Psalm 139, verse 2 also tells us that God knows our thoughts. Now that is frightening. Yes, it is. We have no privacy from God. He knows every thought, word, and deed. He knows our emotions, how we feel about things, and so on. This is a clear teaching of Scripture. And that's why the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, that, quote, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And it certainly doesn't make any sense to say that we should make our thoughts obedient to Christ if he doesn't know what they are. 
Yeah, that's right. That wouldn't make any sense at all. Hebrews 4 verse 13 tells us that, quote, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account, end quote. And in Revelation 2, we read Jesus' letter to the church in Thyatira, in which he chastises them for tolerating an immoral woman whom he calls Jezebel. People today might not recognize how bad it was to be called Jezebel. Perhaps a modern equivalent would be to call someone Hitler. Jezebel was the extremely wicked wife of King Ahab in the Old Testament. That's right. So we get the message quickly that Christ considered this woman to be evil. Based on some of the Greek manuscripts we have, she may even have been the wife of the pastor of the church in Thyatira. But whoever she was, she led people in the church into sin, most likely by teaching, as many do now, that because we are saved by grace, it doesn't matter if we sin. But listen to Christ's condemnation of this idea. We read in Revelation 2, verse 23, that Jesus said to the church, quote, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. That is not the Jesus that most modern churches like to preach about, one who will repay people according to their deeds. No, it isn't at all. But it is the true Christ revealed to us in the Word of God. He searches hearts and minds and will repay each according to their deeds. Even those who are truly saved are subject to God's severe discipline. If you are born again, you cannot lose your salvation, but you certainly can bring great trouble to yourself, your family, and your church if you sin. On the one hand, that's obvious. If I commit some serious sin and end up in jail or something, that obviously brings shame and real hardship to my family and my church. But in addition, Paul told the church in Corinth that they were experiencing serious problems because they were not repenting of and forsaking their sins before taking communion. In 1 Corinthians 11:29 and 30, he wrote that, quote, Anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. And fallen asleep is an obvious euphemism for dying. It is, yes. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul had told the church that God would test every person's life work by fire. This passage is most directly addressed to church leaders, but the general principle is consistent with what is said throughout the Bible for all believers. In verses 13 to 15, we read that, quote, Fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames, unquote. Now, there's comfort in that verse, of course. It does say that he himself will be saved. But there is also great pain involved for him and others associated with him, as is indicated by saying he will be saved only as one escaping through the flames. That certainly doesn't sound like a pleasant way to go to heaven. No, it doesn't. But, and this is extremely important, we want to be sure to make it clear that the pain we suffer for our sins does not in any way atone for our sins. Only Jesus Christ can do that. But God does discipline his children. Now, if we're smart, we will take the warning and live holy lives. And so now let me make it clear how this ties back into our topic of God's omniscience. Yeah, please do. We won't suffer only for sins that are obvious and seen by others. As we read a minute ago in Hebrews 4.13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. 
everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. This includes our thoughts. Remember that Christ said in Matthew 5.28 that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We can conclude that even our lustful glances and thoughts, which no human being can discern, make God angry and subject us to the possibility of discipline. That is a very sobering realization. Yes, this realization should bring serious sobriety to our lives. Not all sickness is directly attributable to our own sin, so you don't want to assume that just because someone is sick, it's the direct result of personal sin. But we should also not neglect that possibility. Most professing Christians today seem to completely ignore the possibility that they could be sick or experiencing some trial because of their sin. But if the doctor tells you that you have cancer, or you lose your job, or whatever, a serious period of self-reflection and repentance is certainly appropriate. Yeah, I agree. How else do Christians act in ways that practically deny God's omniscience? Well, we practically deny His omniscience along with His omnipotence and His goodness whenever we allow ourselves to be anxious. Anxiety is obviously a very common thing, even among Christians. I agree. In fact, I suspect that every single one of us has allowed ourselves to be anxious at some point. But in Philippians 4, verse 6, we're told, quote, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, unquote. In the Greek, Paul uses the imperative mood for the verb, so this is a command to not be anxious, not a suggestion. And we are given great reason to not be anxious. In 1 Peter 5, verse 7, where we're told, Cast all your anxiety on God, because He cares for you. That's great comfort. And it is even greater comfort when you remember that God does, in fact, know everything. There are no problems of mine that go unnoticed by God. And there is no problem of mine that he cannot solve. God's omniscience is not only frightening, it's also very comforting when you couple it with his fatherly love. But of course, we must be Christians for that to be comforting. That's very true. God's omniscience should be terrifying to anyone who does not know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. I think that's why there is so much animosity in the world directed at Jesus Christ and his followers. People know that God exists, even if they call themselves atheists, and in their heart of hearts they know they will be judged. As a result, a lot of anger wells up inside. I always find it very revealing when you encounter a very active or angry atheist. Now, what do you mean? Well, think about it. Have you ever heard of a society of people who spend a lot of time trying to disprove the existence of Santa Claus? No, I haven't, and I don't expect to either. And that's precisely my point. If someone is truly convinced in the core of their being that God cannot exist, there is no reason for that person to expend huge amounts of time and energy trying to disprove his existence and to discredit the Bible. And there's no cause for anger. He might feel sorry for people who believe that God exists, but unless one happens to be a close relative or friend, I can't imagine that would motivate him to spend a lot of time and energy on the topic. So whenever I see a really active atheist and there are many atheist clubs on college campuses and elsewhere, I think it reveals a person who knows that God does exist and is angry at the prospect of being judged. Now, that's an interesting thought, and it reminds me of the line from Shakespeare's play, Hamlet, the lady doth protest too much, methinks. Do you want to say anything more about God's omniscience? Yeah, just one more quick point. 
In J.I. Packer's little book, Concise Theology, he makes the following statement, quote, God's knowledge is linked with his sovereignty. He knows each thing, both in itself and in relation to all other things, because he created it, sustains it, and now makes it function every moment according to his plan for it, unquote. And he then cites Ephesians 1 verse 11 in support, which says that in Christ, quote, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, unquote. Packer then goes on to say that, quote, the idea that God could know and foreknow everything without controlling everything seems not only unscriptural, but nonsensical. Yeah, that states very clearly the point we made in session 65, that God cannot know everything that will ever happen unless he has the ability to control everything that will happen. Yeah, Packer makes that point quite forcefully, I think. And Ephesians 1.11 is very clear. Everything has been predestined according to the plan of God. And we again see the simplicity of God as well. His attributes of divine sovereignty and omniscience are linked. And his omnipotence comes into play as well. Planning is one thing, but he must also be able to execute his plan. And with that, I think we're done with God's omniscience, and it's time to move on to the next attribute. Okay. Uh, Assuming that we're going to continue to follow the treatment in Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, that means the next attribute would be God's wisdom, correct? That's right. And Grudem defines this attribute in the following way. Quote, God's wisdom means that God always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals, unquote. Wisdom and knowledge are closely related, but different. It is possible for a person to have vast knowledge, but not be very wise in putting that knowledge to use. And it's also possible for someone who is relatively ignorant to nonetheless be wise. Grudem's definition is similar to that given by others as well. They all contain the idea of some end purpose being achieved, and the purpose and the means both being the best possible. And God's purpose in creation is the manifestation of his own glory, as we discussed way back in session two. That's right. And his wisdom guarantees, as I noted then, that the manifestation of his glory is the best possible purpose for creation. Nothing in creation can compare with the glory of God, but creation itself can display the glory of God. So there is no other purpose that would be as great. God's power, holiness, justice, and mercy, to name just a few of his attributes, are all displayed by creation. And when I say creation here, I'm not just talking about the physical universe, but also God's plan for the history of the universe, and more particularly, his plan for the history of mankind. That makes me think of the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which asks, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Yeah, that's a wonderful statement of our purpose, and it's completely biblical. In Isaiah 60, verse 21, God tells us about the future glory of His people and says, Then will all your people be righteous, and they will possess the land forever. They are the shoot I have planted, the work of my hands, for the display of my splendor." In the ESV and other translations, instead of saying, for the display of my splendor, it says that I might be glorified. There are many other places in the Bible where we're told that God's ultimate purpose is the manifestation of his own glory. Probably the most well-known verse is 1 Corinthians 10, 31, which says, quote, 
whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is probably the best known verse, and we quoted it in session two, but there are many others as well. For example, in Ezekiel 36, God tells his people about what he is going to do, and in verse 22 we read, quote, This is what the Sovereign Lord says, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name. We've also pointed out before that it isn't just human beings that are made for God's glory. Even the inanimate creation is created for that purpose. Psalm 19 famously begins by saying, The heavens declare the glory of God. And I think this is a good place to stop for today. So let me remind our listeners that they can email their questions and comments to info at whatdoesthewordsay.org. We look forward to hearing from you. You've been listening to What Does the Word Say? Brought to you by Grace and Glory Media. And I'm Mark Roby. In our next session, Dr. Spencer will continue to examine the attributes of God. and We hope you'll join us. The session you heard today is available, along with all other sessions, in the archive on our website at whatdoesthewordsay.org. We also have a free book available to you entitled Good News for All People, written by Rev. P.G. Matthew, founder and senior minister of Grace Valley Christian Center. To request your free copy of this excellent summary of the biblical message of salvation, go to whatdoesthewordsay.org.